Let's just look at Jacob's life. He fell out of favor with his father-in-law. Last week we picked up where he was running. He was running away from his father-in-law. He took his wives, his children, his wealth, and he ran. His father-in-law was offended by this. He had the mind to hurt him, to harm him, to take everything back. God intervened and protected him. But also, Jacob's life is full of striving because he strove with his older brother. The beginning of his life, as he's introduced to us in the story, is that he is hostile with his older brother. He stole his birthright and blessing, and so, of course, he fled from him. Everywhere it seems that Jacob goes, he is striving with people, and he is running away, and he is avoiding confrontation as he creates confrontation. But God caused him to escape. And here now, as we pick up, he has fled from Laban and been rescued from Laban. And all of his possessions and everything he has was not taken from him. God interceded for him and kept his blessing. Only to come out of, they say, the frying pan into the fire. Because now he's going south and he has to deal with his old sins. And maybe some of us have had to do that before too. That you have old sins. Sins from a long time ago. From when you were a young child or a young man or woman. And here is Jacob having to deal with his big brother. We're told that he approaches Esau. And he sends out messengers with lots of donkeys and flocks and servants. To say these are mine but I could give them to you my brother. The messengers return back to him and say, Esau is coming to meet you. And he has 400 soldiers with him. And so Jacob was terrified. He knows his brother is an angry person. And he knows his brother is more powerful than him. And what he does is he takes every blessing he's ever had, all of his possessions, and he divided them into two camps, thinking to himself, well, if he would attack one camp, perhaps the other one could flee. And then... He does the one thing that he's truly known for. This is the climax of his life. He separates his two camps, and then he goes to the Lord in prayer. And so let's learn how to pray. In Genesis 32, verse 9, Jacob becomes a man of prayer. Only at the point in which everything is on the line. He says, he lifts up his voice to God and says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For filling my staff, I crossed the Jordan, and now I've become two camps. He's not a proud, arrogant young man anymore. He's changed. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and will make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he, from what he had with 
him he took as a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats and 200 ewe lambs and 20 rams and 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Tremendous wealth. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servant, pass on ahead of me and put space between each drove. And he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord, Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. That you may say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, and this is his thinking, I may appease him with the presents that go ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. That same night he arose and took two, his two wives and two female servants and his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabuk, Jabuk River. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And without any introduction, the verse continues to say, And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of that day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, Yechov. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him and he passed. Penuel limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket. Because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And this is why Jacob is a man of prayer. Because he encountered a mysterious man in a dark place near the stream ford of a river. And Jacob's life was full of strife. And the whole climax, the culmination of his whole living was a life of struggle to culminate to this one wrestling match. 
Jacob's brothers, particularly his brother Esau, was opposed to him. His father, father father-in-law, was opposed to him. His wives were always striving with one another. And the rest of the book of Genesis will be nothing more than his 12 sons hating each other. His life is a life of strife. And this man came to Jacob and said, You have striven with God, and you have striven with men, and you have prevailed. Does that make any sense so far from have we have seen Jacob's life? What has he really done except run? How has he actually striven? How has he actually conquered? How has he actually prevailed except just by avoiding getting beat up by his brother and having all his stuff taken away? That's literally all he's been trying to do his whole life. It's nothing more than what you'd see in the playroom at my house. Just trying to keep your toys and not get hurt. That's what he's doing. And listen to this gospel. For that is nothing more than our life. We are just children in a playroom. Arguing and bickering over things that don't matter. And God sees us as fools that we are. But the gospel comes to us. And gives us this great lofty title. And says you have striven with God and with men. And you have prevailed. G.K. Chesterton said, The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies. Probably because generally they are the same people. I did quote a Catholic, by the way. There is a point system. just, Or maybe it's a demerit system. Talk about it afterwards. We all strive against God. That's true. Why? We struggle, we struggle because we desire blessings. All of Jacob's life is looking for blessings. Blessings. I want to let you go until you bless me. Father, won't you bless me? Can I not be the firstborn? All he wants is blessings. And James says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not the passions that war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Notice that it went from quarreling to prayer. That was James' counsel. You fight for everything you want, which are blessings, good things. You don't have them because you do not ask. All of Jacob's life is fighting for blessings, for things, and quarreling. And at the end of his life, he learns to pray. He learns to just ask. Don't trick. Don't deceive. Don't steal. Don't fight. Don't bicker. Just ask. The father of lights in whom there is no shifting shadow or variation to change. He has all blessing to give. All the cattle on a thousand hill are his. Just ask. And he has learned that finally. He desired everything from his brother. His brother desired to murder him. He coveted all his father-in-law's possessions and his father hated him. Father-in-law hated him. Now Jacob has finally learned to pray. Just to go to God to pray and to ask. And look how he prayed. He took the Lord's word and brought it right back to him. He took everything that God has given him in truth. 
and brought it back to him in prayer. That is how we pray. We are learning how to truly pray. Do you ever wonder why your prayers seem powerless? Why you're not passionate about praying? Why they seem ineffective? Why they seem to be so distant and remote and removed from you or from God? But the whole point of prayer is to align your will with God's will. The reason a lot of our prayers seem to fall to the ground because they started with the ground. They started down here with us. But here is his prayer. Oh Lord, you said to me, you said this to me. And he pushes it back up to the Lord in prayer to hold him true to his own word. You told me to return back to my country. You told me that you would do me good. You told me that my descendants would be as multiple as the sand on the sea. He's holding God to his own word. And his prayers take on immediate effectiveness because of that. This is a man who knows how to pray now. And he's no longer a deceiver. God has proven to Jacob time and time again that he will hold these promises true. That he will perform his word. And so exactly what he did with Laban. Everything could have been taken and he restored him. He gave Laban a dream to say, do not say anything bad or good to Jacob. Leave him alone. Do not touch his stuff. Do not touch his wife. Do not touch his flocks. And so he kept it. But there was no reason. Laban had the upper hand entirely. He was meek. Laban was meek toward him. He didn't take his stuff, but he was not weak. Laban had the ability to do that, to take everything. The only reason Jacob is blessed is because of God's promises. And now, here is an opportunity to test it once more. He comes before Esau. And again, as always in his life, he has always had the bottom hand. Never the upper hand. Yaakov is his name. And it means heel. The bottom of your foot. Jacob is always trying to grab people's heels to trip them up because he can never stand them shoulder to shoulder to fight. He has always been weak. He has always been tricky. He's always trying to get the upper hand by pulling at the heel. Yechov is his name. And here he comes to his older brother, his firstborn brother, his stronger brother. And of course, he would be the one with 400 soldiers. How am I going to get out of this? He thinks he goes to the Lord in prayer now instead of deception. And he sends out all these delegations of droves led by his servants of all these things he owns. And you hear the list and even by today's standard, this is money. This is money. 200 goats, 20 male goats, yule lambs, rams, 30 camels, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 donkeys, that's a lot of money even today. And he puts it all together and he positions them in waves. Waves of mediation. Waves of grace. Favor. What he's looking for is to placate. To propitiate his brother. And each servant's told explicitly. These belong to your servant Jacob. They are for you my Lord. Complete position of meekness, posture of humility. He's bowing himself before his brother. He's putting himself now, instead of being down there to pull at his heel, to trick him, to deceive him. Just out and out, beautiful, godly humility. He's a changed man. And he thinks to himself, if I may appease him, oh, that my presence would go before me. And afterwards, when I see his face, perhaps my brother will accept me. Perhaps he will forgive me. 
And so what happens, we read later in the next chapter, is Esau comes to him. Jacob lifts up his head and he sees his brother who he hasn't seen in over 20 years. And his brother runs straight to him, grabs his neck, hugs him, and weeps over him. And then Jacob says, take my gifts, take them. And Esau says, I don't need them. I have so much. He says, no, take them. And what he says here is pivotal for it all. He says to his brother, for I have seen your face. And seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. I have seen your face. And seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. And why? Because if you or I were to ever approach the Lord, if we were ever to think we could do that, it would be very much like this scenario. We are in the position of the heel. We always have the lower hand. He has absolute power, complete control. Esau had complete control over his brother. 400 soldiers could do whatever he wanted to him. And he came to his face and his face was smiling and gracious. Esau was also like God in that he was the one wrong. Jacob wronged his brother. He deceived him. He stole his birthright. He stole his blessing. There had to be a mediation. There had to be a restitution. There had to be a repentance. And this is how we all have to approach the Lord. And so here, droves of waves of cattle and goats and every gift to appease his wrath pours over into his older brother and then his brother is smiling and happy and weeping and joyful and hugging and it is as if you were to approach God. It has to be on these terms that you have given him everything he needs to be happy with you because in and of himself, the way Esau could ever have seen Jacob again is nothing more than to remember him as the deceptive crook that he really is and you and I are in this position between the Lord that when we approach him, outside of any propitiation, outside of any mediation, we have nothing. We have nothing. And there is no guarantee. There is no guarantee that he would look upon us favorably. And he says, I've seen you, my brother. And it is like seeing the face of God. For you had my life in your hands. And you did not kill me. So... Here is this man, Jacob. It is like seeing the face of God, he says. Why does Jacob have all this favor and all this grace? The night before he goes to the Lord in prayer. And he wrestles with a man. And what we realize is that he meets the real mediator of his whole life himself. Every other reason... His life ended this way. Every other turn that could have went the other direction that kept him blessed, safe, and full was because of this man that he meets himself. This mysterious man. He suddenly appears and Jacob, we're told, is left alone. There is a man that wrestles with him until the break of day. He's just there standing on the side of the river. It says that same night, the same night he had his children and wives sent away. Verse 23 says explicitly, he sent them across the stream, everything he had. Therefore, he is on the opposite side of the stream, this Yavuk, 
which means to struggle. And he is by himself with no one around. The intention of saying there is nobody here. And then the very next line saying he wrestles with a man. Is to cause us all to pause and say, well, who is this man? Because there's no one here. But there is someone here. Who is this man? He's completely extinguished of all his energy and vitality. We're told that they wrestled until the break of day. They wrestled all night. You don't wrestle all night. You wrestle for two minutes and then you breathe a lot. That's how wrestling works. This is agonal. You have to see what God has done to him. He has taken every ounce of his pride, identity, possessions, family, and crossed them across the stream. That all he has left now is his strength. And yes, God has to take that out of his lungs. And he wrestles him all night long. And it would appear as though the match were even. It would appear as though the wrestler and him were met to duel the whole evening. At the very end, it's only a few moving muscles as they're just there talking to one another, saying, let me go. And then this amazing thing happens. And fights don't work this way. Fights don't work this way. The explosive part of a fight. The explosive part of a wrestling match. Watch boxing. MMA. The first couple rounds is where all the fireworks are. If the two are so closely matched that they make it into the ninth round, there's a lot of energy that's been exhausted now. These two men wrestling all night. And he says, when the man saw in verse 25 that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip. He touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint and dislocated. Where did he get that power? What man wrestles all night and then just grazes his finger across someone's hip socket and puts it out? He is shrouded in darkness. Laban had the power to hurt him. And let him go. Esau had the power to hurt him. And let him go. This man apparently has tremendous power. Between his fingers. And he pleads to Jacob. Let me go. Why? For the sun is dawning. The day has broken. Let me go. For the day has broken. How is sunlight relevant to a wrestling match ever? What? Let, I don't want to wrestle anymore because the sun's up. Who is this man? Why is that important? And where did he get his power? Ezekiel, Exodus 33:20. No one, says the Lord, can see my face and live. No one may see the face of God and continue to breathe. 
This man loves Jacob so much that he has to dislocate his hip so that he won't kill him. And Jacob, disheveled as he is, broken as he is, exhausted as he is, clings to him with his fingers and says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Bless me, bless me, bless me. The whole story of Jacob's life is he wants this one thing. He wants to be blessed. And finally now, for the first time in his whole life, he will really be blessed. And so the man says, well, what is your name? My name is Jacob. I have been the heel of everybody's feet. And I have been a deceiver and a vile person. No longer, he says, shall you be called Jacob. You shall be called Israel, which means Sarah to strive, and El is God. Israel, you've striven with God. You have striven with me, and you have prevailed. I have let you win. You are blessed. You will always be blessed. You will never not be blessed. No one can take these blessings from you. And blessings were always given through the touching of a hand. And so there he is on the hip as a constant reminder of his perpetual weakness and brokenness and his encounter with death and then living. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This new identity. Have you been born again? Jesus says. And they say, where is that in the Old Testament? Nicodemus asks. And he says, have you not read the story where he had a new name and a new identity and a new heart and a new will? He wasn't a deceiver anymore. He wasn't a Yaakov anymore. He was an Israel. The whole nation of God's people come from this word. Those who would dare strive with God and succeed. Those who would dare seek to find his face and not die. This is what it means to be born again. For flesh and blood cannot see the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. You must be born again. You must have a new name, a new identity. Ephesians 4 says, Put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires. Which is a perfect two-word description of everything that Jacob was before God changed him. Desires for blessing through deceit. This is Jacob's life and ours. And he says, Put on a new self, a new name, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He has met the one true God. He'll never walk the same again. But he'll never be the same again neither. And so he asks him. And we should ask ourselves if we walk with a limp. Have you been broken? Do you hate your sin? Do you love God humbling you? Do you love being broken and contrite before him? Has he taken everything from you? Have you ever been across that river in which everything you ever had was on the other side? In which you said to the Lord in prayer, I want you. I just want you. 
my family, kids, and paychecks, my house, my car, my reputation, even the air in my lungs, if you would wrestle that out of me, if I could just have you, I will not let you go until you bless me. If you were to ever pray that way, you will be blessed. You will be saved. In the name of Christ, that is our hope. That is our promise. Call those promises back up to him. You said, if I called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd be saved. You said you would take all my sins away. You said I would be blessed. He will. He will come down to visit you with those promises. Remember, this interaction with the strange man started with him invoking God's promises in prayer. And God responded with due measure. And so here is Jacob. And he reverses the question and says this now. Now please, I've told you my name. Please tell me. And we all want to know, don't we? The mystery of this whole thing. Well, who is the man? And Jacob can't take it, but has enough air in his lungs to say, please Tell me, I need to know, what is your name? Who are you? And the man does not trust his motives and says, why do you ask me my name? Resolving this mystery, who would dislocate his hip such? And he leaves him. That's it. That's it. The sun comes up. Before the morning sun, he left him disheveled, dislocated, broken, yet blessed. Broken, yet blessed. The man is gone as quickly as he came. And who is this man? We have no name for him. We have no face for him. Was Jacob dreaming? He only dreamt a few chapters ago of the stairway to heaven with the Lord seated high. And he woke up. It was just a dream. He went about his day the next day knowing it was just a dream. And here is Jacob hallucinating Wrestling some figment of his imagination. That real sun came the next day. A real day started anew for him. He walked away from that stream with a limp on his leg. Because he had wrestled a real man. This was no dream. The beauty of the gospel is that you can have the experiences of God's glory upon your heart and life. And it doesn't stay there. It never stays there. These are, as we say, claps of thunder in which all history must acknowledge. What we say as Christians when we say Jesus Christ is Lord is not, I have a feeling and a warm heart fuzzy that I think Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. History has proven it, will prove it. He breaks in to the real world. This is not philosophy. Jacob's hip was broken. This was not a dream. This was not his imagination. He wrestled with a man. And he was never the same again. Jacob is convinced. Though he doesn't have the man's name. He goes so far as to name the place. And in naming that place we are told that it was called Peniel. El, of course, said is God. And pen, penny, is face. This real man before him wrestling. I've seen the face of God. 
I have seen God's face, he says, and my life has been spared. All my possessions, family, and everything came down to this moment, clinging to him for his very own life and all the blessings he has. God has brought him to that point. This is the only way we ever would prevail with God, through this mediator. Do you see? Do you see? From the beginning, not the gospel of Matthew, not the Christian idea of what Jesus is, It has always been this way. God's wisdom and prophetic word has not changed in the midst of all traditions and religions of men. From the beginning, God has always intended to mediate, to come into the real world, a world where hips can be touched, a world where God can be man and man can be God. And this, apart from that mediation, we have no hope. We have no strength. We have no way to approach God in life or in death. This is the gospel. Who is this man's name? Jacob was not given, but we have today. The Lord. The Christ. Jesus. We say as Christians, real history, real hips, real wrestling. There is a real man who is God. He has DNA and lungs and fingerprints. And he came into this world even more really than this story with Jacob. He lowered himself not to just wrestle a man. He lowered himself to the loins of a woman. Was born of a woman. Born under all of our condemnation. And he lived that life. That beautiful life that all of us wish we could have had. All of us wish we could have lived. All the heart motivations and purity of speech that we wish we would have done. And we never could. And without this God-man, we will only wrestle to our death. We will never wrestle God and prevail. We will die. We will see his face and we will die. But if you see the face of the God-man. If the term Peniel means anything now. Is that there is a face to look upon. In which you will never die. In which you will be smiling. And so. Think of Esau. As we close. This is the beautiful reality of Jesus Christ our mediator. Esau was approached because Jacob said, I may appease him if I can present these gifts to him. Perhaps he will accept me. And he rode over again and again all of his wealth in waves, droves of blessings that came to Esau again and again with a servant saying, this is for you, my Lord. It's from your servant who comes behind me. This is for you, my Lord. It is from your servant he submits to you, my Lord. And he is coming right behind me. He's on my tail. How would you ever go to heaven? How would you ever approach the ancient of days? Where will you go to enter the throne room of God? Psalm 51. If you do not delight in sacrifice, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God, our broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will by no means despise. What worked for Esau, worked for Esau. He hasn't seen his brother in 20 years. 
That's a lot of cattle. Pretty wealthy. Okay, I'm okay with this. You know what? I'm better off than you anyway. You took my blessing. Didn't mean much. I love you, little brother. Hugs him, kisses him. Forgotten. Forgotten. And, and, and done. Done. God doesn't forget. God is holy. They're his cattle. Everything you have is his. What are you going to offer him? How could we ever? Psalm 51, he doesn't just, I don't want your cattle. What I want is a broken and contrite heart. I want a heart that is after my heart. I want a heart and a will that is according to me. That makes, oh, if I could see one righteous man, if I could see one who's a broken and contrite heart, I would never let him go. I would never despise him. And here we are. He has given us his son. And it is the Lord Jesus who comes to the Father. And he says, oh, Father, be pleased with my presence. I offer you my life. These hands that are pierced, this blood, it is yours. That life that I lived, you saw and smiled all the way through. It is for you. This is a fragrant aroma, a pleasing sacrifice, the wafting Beautiful smell, the scent of my righteousness and the life that I lived before your face from beginning to end. It was all for you. And now there are some coming on my coattail. Accept them. Accept this as a present that comes to you from them. You will have striven with God and won. You will see a face glowing with joy. Well done, my good and faithful servant, in Christ alone. Your Father, Lord, we thank you that you have given us a name. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful, precious, matchless name of Jesus. And what that name means to us in this room means much more than the many in the world, Lord. For you have wrestled us. Lord, you have exhausted us. And Lord, we pray if there are any here that have refused to surrender everything, that have refused to cross all of their possessions and pride across the stream so that they might have you. Lord, we pray for you to give them grace. Lord, we pray for you to bring them to see your face. For seeing your face is all the grace that we will ever need. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand if you're able as we close the service in Solomon?